If I use the word baptism, it will usually conjure up an image of someone having water applied to them in some kind of religious ritual, usually Christian ritual. If we ask the people outside in this world uh, about what they know about Christians, they would say a few things, and one of them might be they're into that baptism thing. We've seen them baptise their babies, and some of them may have seen uh, adults uh, or hearing about adults being baptised, which to some of them sounds a bit weird like you're an overgrown baby or something. So there's all these ideas uh, floating around about baptism and because, uh, as, I, as I announced, uh, some uh, baptisms taking place uh, next week, I thought it would be timely to go run over some of the uh, basics, some of the fundamentals about uh, the word baptism, a couple of the uses of the word, what, what it really means. What is water baptism about? Who is to be baptised? How do we do it? All those questions. Half an hour isn't a great deal of time to, to sort all these issues out. Some aspects of baptism have been debated uh, right throughout Christian history. And again, I am not going to be the one to draw a line under that and give you a solution and end all the debate. The debate will carry on. I'm simply sharing with you where I am right now in my understanding of baptism. And so I thought I would uh, maybe begin by saying this, that the idea of uh, using water to, to cleanse yourself uh, is obviously uh, it's universal, it's as old as, as mankind. I don't mean people getting a wash. I mean that people have struggled with how to deal with the, the wrong things they've done, which are within them, sinful passions. And so people have almost naturally thought that if they can bathe with water, perhaps the gods would also cleanse them inwardly. What else are they to do? Some of them sacrifice animals. But certainly that's a common idea that we can use this outward washing to somehow affect us inside. We find in the Bible too, we find God instituted rules about using water. Washing your hands for this. Having water thrown on you for something else. Bathing for something else. And so this was part of that, that mosaic law, that what we think is quite complicated. In fact, what happened was, uh, after the Old Testament was finished, uh, Judaism uh, expanded its religious rules, its rituals, and invented ten times more than what they were given by God, which is why today it's a quite a complex religion. So part of what the Jews did was uh, 
that they invented these new initiation rites involving water. So there was still, in the back of people's minds, there was still this idea that we could uh, either actively change ourselves with washing on the outside, or at least represent something that was going on inside. And it was with that background, that confusion really, that a change was about to take place. So we go back to the year, about the year 4 BC. Around the year 4 BC. Two women were pregnant. And one uh, gave birth to a son they called John. And John would be known as uh, an eccentric individual. Maybe a bit of a loner. He had a simple life, John, but primarily what he was famous for was baptising people. So although the Jews had types of baptisms and washings, when John came along, he revitalised this idea. Suddenly, the new thing to do was be baptised for the repentance of sins. Let's have a look at one of the references to this, uh, to what John was up to and where this was going in Matthew 3 and verse 11 Matthew 3 and verse 11 which is on page 975 in the church bible so John the Baptist is preaching in the wilderness of Judea and he's telling people to repent. Repentance was not a new concept for the local people, the Jews. Repentance was not a new concept. But now they sensed something different was happening. And many of them wanted to have a, a clean slate, if you like. And, and repent in a fresh way towards God. And John was providing this service. Matthew 3.11 he says this interesting thing after baptising so many people he says I baptise you with, with water for repentance so he's baptising them with water to accompany their repentance okay but he who is coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry he will baptise you the Holy Spirit and fire. Right. So I said there were two women pregnant in 4 BC. One of them was called Mary, gave birth to a child they called Jesus. Became known as Jesus of Nazareth, son of Mary, as was supposed the son of Joseph too. And it turns out these two children were cousins. And so we're, we're not sure how close they were growing up. But John knew that he was special, that he was the Messiah. And so John says, this person coming is going to change everything. And then we have this strange occurrence uh, later on in the same chapter. So keep, keep in the chapter 3 of Matthew. 
And you look at verse 13, it says, Jesus came from Galilee to John to be baptised by him. Now John obviously protested. I mean, if Jesus asked me to baptise him, I would say, no, 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 that's the wrong way around. If he tried to wash my feet, I'd be saying, no, please don't. But of course, that's because we're we're ignorant of, of how, how these things are working. And Jesus said to him, okay, let's just do it for now. There's a reason for it. And verse 16 says, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and the heavens were open to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him, and so on. And so Jesus here is not, Jesus isn't being baptized to signify anything that has happened to him to, to remove sin. John's baptism was about remission of sins. Jesus hadn't sinned. So, Jesus says, I know this is unusual, but for now, go with this, please. If nothing else, Jesus' baptism sets an example for us. If Jesus was able to humble himself in the waters of baptism, then so should the believer. Something important was happening here. Baptism, this special baptism to do with remission of sins, it come back to the centre stage in the religious life of the Jews. And then, then this guy comes who claims to be the Messiah and he gets baptised too. Something was changing. And in fact we know that the time of Jesus and John was a transition from the old order to a brand new order, a brand new world, a brand new dispensation. So let's have a think for a minute about what baptism really means. Now I said that most people, when they hear the word baptism, picture something to do with water. But that is not the prime meaning of baptism in the New Testament. It isn't. For example, let's have a look at these unusual things. If you think baptism is all about water, let's have a look at what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, this is on page 1152, by the way. First Corinthians, uh, chapter 10. It says this strange thing. Paul says to them, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. So this is the Hebrews leaving Egypt. Our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptised into Moses in the cloud and the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. But they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Okay. Now, there's a lot in there. But let's limit ourselves to this. That... Baptism into Moses obviously has nothing to do with us being having water chucked on us. 
this was something else. Something happened, and we don't need to go into that today, but something happened at that time to the Hebrews when their relationship to Moses changed and they received the law and so on. But whatever that fresh relationship is, we see that mirrored in a far superior way now with Christ. And this is in Galatians. This is in Galatians uh, chapter 3. Uh, Galatians chapter 3. It's on page uh, 1171. <clears throat> Galatians 3 and verse 27. So Galatians 3.27 says, I'm going to start at verse 26, I think. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. That's how we become a child of God. We have faith in Christ. Without faith in Christ, you're not God's child. But crucially, verse 27, for as many as of you were baptised into Christ, have put on Christ. Now, you may still be tempted to think that to be baptised into Christ means that you go through a ritual and that causes you, causes you to be baptised into Christ, if you like to be uh, united with him. So what, what we're saying today is that that's not the case at all. The waters of baptism have no power. We baptise people in the same stuff that just comes out the tap that I'm drinking today. Or next week, the filthy rotten waters of a lake. Doesn't matter. To be baptised into Christ is something spiritual and the most important thing about what I'm saying today is that baptism in the New Testament means one of two things and one of them is the most important. One of them is to do with a spiritual baptism from heaven. It's that baptism that takes place when someone is given by God the gift of repentance and faith and so their hearts change and they cry out to God. And what's happened is they've been inhabited by the Holy Spirit. And as a work of cleansing and forgiveness has gone on, and that is the true baptism of God. We are baptised into Christ when we are converted, or to be more particular, when we receive the Holy Spirit. Now, picture a lady. She is a has no particular interest in Christ and she sits watching television. God is about to do a work in her, this rebel. And God sent his Holy Spirit into her heart. And the Holy Spirit comes and makes his home with this woman. And this woman, it's quite possible, can simply carry on watching EastEnders and not be aware of any change whatsoever. That, friends, is the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. It is a quiet work. It goes unnoticed for the most part. But that Holy Spirit then 
sets fire to the soul of that lady and she finds things are changing she sees things differently she has an interest in God she didn't have before she starts to look around and find a church and speak to people and ask questions and eventually someone points her to Christ and so she repents towards God for her sin and she places faith in Christ and this whole thing is spiritual baptism not only through the work of the Spirit are we united to Christ there's something else as well we are united to other Christians you, 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 must, you must know this that, that it's all one thing Christ is the head of the body and all its people are bits of that body that's how it's pictured you see so when you join Christ you join the other believers as well and we see this mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12 so if you go back again go back a few pages now to page 1154 1 Corinthians 12 and starting at verse 12 First Corinthians 12, 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, many body parts, and all are and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, that is via the Holy Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So the crucial part of that verse for us today is that by or through one spirit, the Holy Spirit, we were all baptised into one unit. So this spiritual baptism unites us with Jesus and unites us to each other. So, now, now we know for certain that this is a spiritual act of cleansing. Cleansing from sin. Then we can consider water baptism. Then we can consider that water baptism, however it's carried out, is there to represent some spiritual change in the person. In the scriptures, sometimes that change happens afterwards, sometimes before. But for today, it is for things that have happened already, which is why we get people confessing their sins and asking to be baptised. So again, water baptism represents inward cleansing by the Spirit. Let's think then now about who are to be baptised who are to be baptised well I have friends who are what we call pedo-baptists right which is just a fancy name for people who baptise babies if you want to know what we are we are credo-baptists that's a good word isn't it credo-baptists uh, we believe that we baptise people because they've made a profession of faith. 
the others, the other other Christians, uh, will say that no, we can baptize a baby in the hope that it will become a Christian. So it's the complete other way round. I'm not here to ridicule those people because, for one thing, many of them are my friends. Um, but yeah, uh, we, we were charitable towards them, but I am baffled. I am baffled as to how you can conclude that putting water on a baby that doesn't even know what day it is has anything to do with New Testament baptism. Water baptism is for people who have said, I, I'm repenting of my sin. And I, I want to be baptised in water to, to represent that, to represent that, that conversion. And so we have that, what I said before, repentance and faith and the Holy Spirit cleansing. And that's all represented by the water. How can that be done to babies? A baby can't confess its sinfulness. A baby... In a real sense, the baby hasn't consciously sinned yet, even though it's a sinner, in, in a sense. The baby hasn't, you know, a newborn baby hasn't, you know, deliberately, uh, knowingly gone out to sin. But, I'm simply saying that the whole thing is, uh, is uh, strange to me, to, 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 to baptise babies. And so... Uh, after the Reformation, the baptising of babies carried on. Protestants carried on baptising babies. And then a little group who'd always been there in the background, the, the Baptists, they, they, were like, they were like baddies. And the Baptists were, were persecuted because of their belief that, you know, we, we, we can't baptise babies. We don't know what's going on. And so we, friends, are the we're the sort of descendants, if you like, of those Baptists. And you wouldn't think so that they got persecuted because we, we are now evangelical churches all over the city. They're all Baptists, aren't they? They're, they're all, they all baptise, um, uh, you know, adults or teenagers anyway. Um, uh, but certainly not babies. But yeah, this was, a, this was a heresy, this idea of what we do. It was heretical. Um, so, the subjects are people who are old enough to know they've sinned, people who are old enough to say they repent of the sin, that they want to turn from it, that they trust in Christ for their salvation, those things. And those people who express themselves in that way, we, we, we say, you should be baptised. You should be baptised. When do we do it? When should we baptise them? What should we do with someone who wants to be baptised? Should we put them on a course? Put them on a, a course of study to know what baptism's about? Do we make them listen to a sermon about baptism first? What do we do? Do we delay? Do we do it straight away? Well, in the early church, they decided that there should be a delay, a long delay, before baptism was administered. Why? Because the person who approaches you, 
and they say they've been saved, you know, 10 minutes ago. Well, they clearly don't know what they're saying. They clearly don't know what they are doing. And so it would be an offence to God to baptise people who could be faking it. There was a logic to, to their practice, but it wasn't anything derived from the scriptures. This was just pure uh, logic. And so the early church devised a whole system whereby you had to be in baptism sort of classes for two to three years before you were even considered for baptism. They wanted to make sure you were the real deal. Sometimes, I mean today, if there are delays in people being baptised, it's, it's, it's got to be for some other reason, some legitimate reason. But really, when we look in the New Testament, baptism was, was conducted straight away. Straight away. There was no interrogation. There was no deep interviews about their understanding of what baptism was about or what the gospel was about. People, people were, were brand new Christians and they were, they were baptised straight away. And we see, look in the book of Acts for example, you'll see the Ethiopian eunuch, he had a conversion and within two minutes he says, well I probably need to be baptised, there's, there's some water here, can we, can we, can we go over there? It was just like minutes later. You know, the Apostle Paul, he was delivered from his blindness, and his, his, then his, his literal blindness and his spiritual blindness, and he, he said he got up and he was baptised. We see Lydia, she was down, she was Jewish, she was having a time of prayer with her friends down by the river, a little prayer meeting, and then she was approached by the Apostles, and she, was, uh, she had the gospel explained and she believed and she was baptised about 15 minutes later. Also in Acts, in chapter 2, we see Peter there and uh, speaking to a multitude. And on one day, it says, on one day there were 3,000 people <coughs> saved. Or should I say they were added to the church. Let's just say they were all genuine for now, right? 3,000 people. They believed and they were baptised on the spot. So it seems that it's not our responsibility to ensure that they have an understanding of, of everything in the Bible. It's much more basic than that. All we look for is a, a sincere repentance and understanding that Christ is the only way they can be saved. That's it. We don't ask them, but hang on, hang on. Do you understand the doctrine of the Trinity? Or, or penal substitution? Do, do you understand the doctrine of the church? The doctrine of worship? Do you know any of these things? It's not our job. It's not our job. The church is to baptise new converts. If they are faking it, then they will answer to God, not us. So by the practice of the New Testament... And the apostles, the timing was, it was just as soon as possible, as soon as you can. I'd like to now just mention a few things about how we do this thing. And so it comes down to how we baptise, you know, the actions that we perform and uh, the words that we use. 
another spiritual, another uh, doctrinal minefield throughout the centuries. Let's say you get a pile of people who agree that right, we're only going to baptise people who are old enough to know that they are, you know, scumbags and need to be saved. So let's assume that everyone's on the same page and understands that's what we're going to do. And then someone says, well, how do we do it? How do we baptise? Are we going to... Is there, there's water? Is there not water involved? Do we throw a bucket of water up in the face? What, what, what do we do? Do we stick them in the shower? So we go to the scriptures. And lo and behold, we find in the scriptures themselves no directions whatsoever about how to baptise. <laughs> no. So if you thought, we'll just go to the scriptures and that will answer all our questions. It doesn't mention how baptisms were performed in the Bible. This is why there's all this debate going on because people are saying, right, well, we have to look at the evidence and try to be detectives and try to work out how it's done. You can't. You can't. I thought out today I would mention the three most popular ways that baptisms are performed and then tell you why it doesn't matter. You might not like that. You might want something more black and white, something more concrete, so it can be done properly. But just like if you ask me, what posture should I assume when I pray, Paul? Should I stand like this? Should I lie on the floor? Should I kneel? What, how should I pray? And I will say, of course, I don't care. And neither does God. <laughs> Do what you want. The point about baptism is we, we need to use water, but let's look at the three, three ways that it's commonly used. First of all, we have the idea of sprinkling. So someone can be baptised by having water sprinkled on them, either by hand or using some uh, like sticks, twigs, and sort of sprinkling it that way. So we'll, we'll look at some examples in the scriptures of this and see if it's any help. So turn to Ezekiel, if you will. Ezekiel, somewhere in the middle. And Ezekiel is, uh, this is page 875 in your church Bibles. Uh, so Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning at verse 25. So Ezekiel 36, 25, and it's on page 875. Now this is Ezekiel prophesying, so Ezekiel is, uh, is speaking, but God's given him the words. So this is like God speaking, if you know what I mean. So God says, 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes. So God is representing his inward cleansing by the image of throwing water, sprinkling water on people. And we find sprinkling is used uh, in, in 
the Mosaic law too. But we're going to look at just one more example in Numbers. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, chapter 19. It's on page 152. So Numbers 19 and verse 13 says this. Numbers 19, 13, page 152 in the Church Bible says, Whoever touches a dead person, the body of anyone who has died and does not cleanse himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from Israel, because the water for impurity was not thrown on him, he shall be unclean, his uncleanness is still on him, because there was provision in the law to have water thrown on the person, to, to represent forgiveness of sin. Sprinkling then has some precedent in the Bible. That doesn't prove that we do Christian water baptism by sprinkling. It doesn't. It just says that if you want to do have water sprinkled on you, it's a valid method to represent what's going on inside. Because God gave us the picture. God gave us the imagery. It wasn't invented by anyone else. Let's have another look at another mode. Pouring. Pouring. So if you see old, um, if you see old photographs by the famous painters, you know some of those paintings are marvelous and blasphemous at the same time. But you might see, you might see uh, Jesus uh, kneeling in the water in the Jordan like this, and you'll see John the Baptist with a with a, a bowl or something, and he pours water on him. And so pouring is another method used by Christians. Uh, even today. I, I, re I read a scripture earlier that talked about Jesus' baptism. And remember what it said. He, he was in the water. He got baptised. He came, he came out back on the bank. And, and John, saw, John saw the Holy Spirit descend on him from above. And so that lends itself to the idea that however what we do with water should come from above maybe. Is, is that fair? Well, we'll have a look at a couple of examples of this too. We'll have a look in Joel. Uh, Joel is uh, one of the last one of the last books in the New Testament. It's on page um, nine two uh, two in your church Bibles. Joel chapter two and verse twenty eight, and this is how the the. This is how we receive the Holy Spirit. Joel 2, 28, page 922 says, And it shall come to pass afterwards that I, that's the Lord, will pour out my Spirit, pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy, etc. Verse 29, Even on the servants, it says, I will pour out my Spirit. Okay. And then just one more in Zechariah. So if you go a bit further on in the Bible, come to Zechariah, page 966. Zechariah 13. Page 966, Zechariah 13, the first verse. It's another interesting image. This is given by God as well. On that day, some glorious day in the future, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David 
and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And so now the cleansing power of God is pictured as a, a sort of fountain, a so maybe water flowing down, pouring and pouring on a person. And so we might choose to um, might choose that as a mode of baptism, pouring water. Uh, our eldest daughter Bethany was baptised a number of years ago. She had a, a, an extreme fear of water, so much that she, she doesn't even like water on her face. You might think that's odd. It doesn't matter. That was her situation. And so um, the church where she was baptised, well, they, they said, no, it must be done this way. She needs to go under water. And, and I, I, I made a bit of a case, and they agreed. Uh, not that they were wrong, they agreed to do it the other way. And so Bethany had water poured on her while she sat uh, in this, uh, I think it was an inflatable paddling pool, but she had water poured on her. And of course, I am absolutely convinced that that was a legitimate baptism. That was a proper baptism, just like the others are. Here's the third one. The third way baptism is administered today, uh, amongst churches like us, immersion is used, being dumped in water. So you will have seen that more than any other method. And so people are uh, uh, placed under, under the surface of the water and brought back out again. And so that's, as I say, that's common amongst the uh, Baptists. <clears throat> so it's common enough. I don't need to. I don't need to show you. That the, the, there are no direct references in Scripture to, to, to direct us that way. But you know, people who believe in that being the best method, they make a case. They make some case. It's not a case I'm persuaded by, but they make they make a, a, a case um, that. Uh, the word baptism, they say, always means to completely immerse something in water. That, that's what they say. Uh, I, I would just note this, that in Mark chapter 7, it says that the furniture, like the couches and everything, and the beds and the tables were baptised. <coughs> what does it mean then? The, the, ba Baptists have been so desperate that they've said, well, maybe they disassembled all the furniture so that they could place each piece on the water. It doesn't mean that at all. It means that they were washed. The couches and beds were washed. They were baptised. There's absolutely no need for us to conclude that these couches were, were, were submerged in any way. But I mention immersion because it's the most common one. And to be honest, I suspect as well that because it's so visually more impressive you know, lots of water instead of a little bit. You know, you get soaked, you don't just get, you know, sprinkled. It, it's, some people are inclined towards immersion because uh, they feel it's a more full experience. And again, I'm not here to dismiss that or argue against it. This is how I was baptised years ago, by immersion, as was Karen. But I mentioned those three. I, I will say this about immersion. The scriptures do not say that being laid down in the water and brought back up, that we do that because it's a picture of death and resurrection. That is not the case in Scripture. Um, if you want to do 
symbolised Jesus going in the tomb, well, he, he, he went sideways, he was carried in sideways. So maybe we should re reproduce that. Where did he die? He died on the cross. Let's try and reproduce that with the water. So that you know, it, it just, it wasn't meant to represent those things. When we're converted, that is described as a death and resurrection. It's also described as being planted like a seed and sprouting. It's described in a whole load of ways. Baptism by water is meant to represent spiritual cleansing primarily and not death and resurrection. So the point is that these different methods, they caused some, uh, they caused some uh, debate in the early church. I thought I would mention a couple of them. Uh, the early church, remember, just after Jesus went, there was a bit of confusion. <coughs> There's also the fact they were very close to the apostles. So you might think, ah, they, they knew what they were doing. But confusion came in very rapidly as well. And so we find a mixture of, of truth and error in the early, early church in the first uh, four centuries. One of the documents from the early church, the Didache, says that you need to use running water. It needs to be running water. They need to stand under running cold water. They said, if you can't have cold, then you can, you can have warm water. That, that, was, that was good of them, wasn't it? They said, if you can't find running water, then the next best thing is to pour it on them yourself manually, pour it on their head. But that was just their, that was just their interpretation. Someone around the same time, Tertullian said, oh, we need to dump people under water and bring them back up again. What's the principle of water baptism? The principle is this. Use water. Use water. That's the principle. No matter how you've been baptised, it's fine. As long as water was used. As long as water was used, that's, that's that. It is unimportant. It is down to personal preference. And anyone who I baptise will have a choice of how they want it to be done. And they must not be tempted, they must not be tempted to think that one way is inferior to another. I'd say this, I'm closing now, but I will, I will say this as well. The very fact that we can have a preference, the very fact we acknowledge there isn't one right way and a wrong way, shows something of our spiritual maturity. Because if someone came to me and said, Paul, the only way to pray is on your knees, I would think they were spiritually immature. Because they don't, they've missed the point. And if someone said, Paul, baptism has to be done only in this way, I would say they're spiritually immature because they've missed the point of the baptism. God doesn't care. He wants to see water. He wants to see a public profession. And he doesn't care how it's administered. Well, the principle is water. I will only say this then, that uh, just to finish on, uh, the words, the words that we use. So we, 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 we've said what it's about, what it represents, who is to be baptised, when, we've looked about how we baptise them, and the words... 
There is less freedom in the words that we use. All the examples, bar one, of baptism in the Bible uh, are done in the name of Christ. So, we will look at a couple of these scriptures. The first one is in Acts 2 and 38. Yeah, Acts chapter 2, 38. Yeah, page 1097. You want that? Yeah, Acts 2 and verse 38. Okay. Page 1097. This is Peter's great speech, or one of them. I'll start at verse 37. Now, when they heard this, about Jesus, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. And if you go a bit further ahead in Acts 19, so turn a few pages to Acts 19, and we get to verse 5. Acts 19 and verse 5. This is the Apostle Paul now. This is not Peter anymore. People heard the Gospel in verse 5. It says, On hearing this, they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. Those 3,000 people I said to you earlier in the book of Acts, 3,000 people in one day, every one of them was baptised in the name of Jesus Christ. So why, why, do, why do I say this? Because almost all the baptisms in the New Testament use this, this, this wording, if you like, or rather this approach of being in the name of Christ. We baptise you in the name of Christ. One reference in the Scriptures mentions Father, Son and Holy Spirit. It's on that basis that it's on that basis that I, I, I concluded that the, the, the better practice would be to baptise in the name of Christ. But it doesn't matter because we serve, we serve a triune God. We serve a triune God and so when we baptise in Christ's name, it is in the name of the triune God as well. I, I'm, only, I'm only mentioning that the here, uh, the majority of references... Uh, all but one. Uh, the words are, uh, it's all done in the name of <coughs> Jesus Christ. We're baptised into Christ, inwardly. So we're baptised outwardly in the name of Christ. He is to have the preeminence. This is why it's all about him. He's the one to have the preeminence. This is why we don't congratulate people on their baptism. We don't congratulate people for repenting of sin. We say, well done, you've done really well there, repenting of your scumminess. We don't say that, do we? It's all of God, it's all about God. And in the same way, we don't, we don't congratulate people when they turn up for worship. Oh, you've done a really crack, I'm so proud of you today, the way you sang and worshiped God. Oh, you're amazing. That horrifies us. It's all about Christ. So avoid the temptation. You're happy for people who are baptised 
Try to avoid the temptation of saying, I'm so proud of you, congratulations on your baptism. I know what you mean, but try to avoid it. It's horrible. We don't congratulate a person. They're just admitting that they're worthless and they want to publicly tell everyone they're worthless. Is that something we should be telling them to be proud of? We're pleased for them. We say we're so thankful, you know, we're so happy that you've nailed your colours to the mast. But ultimately, it is always, always about Jesus Christ and glorifying him alone. We leave it there, brethren. Thank you for listening. We're going to uh, conclude our worship with uh, our final hymn.